0: titled the message this morning, Longing for a World Without Evil. That sounds like a pretty enticing idea, right? Longing for a world without evil. There's a lot of longing like that being expressed in our day. In fact, the uh, ideas of justice and peace could probably be said are the mantra of our day, right? We're hearing those cries everywhere, and rightfully so. Justice and peace, peace on earth, is a worthwhile thing to place our hope in. Absolutely. The question, though, that we have to pose is this. Is it even possible? Is peace on earth even possible if, and this is the important if, if we take Jesus out of the equation, could humanity... As they're trying so hard, as we are trying so hard, can we truly find some way to bring about harmony in the world, harmony with everyone? And even if we could do that, could we then sustain it? What would it take? What would it take? Well, what if we could find some way to lock up and get rid of or reform all of the bad apples in the world? Would that do it? Could we do that? Just we, we could round them all up, all the bad apples, take them out. Would that do it? Well, here's one big problem: How do we know who they are? How do we decide who they are? I mean, we could start with certainly the, the blatantly evil ones out there. We could take the murderers and the rapists and the child abusers, the blatant racists and the like. But would that be enough? What about bad institutions? What about bad ideologies? There's a lot of people out there that say the problem with the world is is organized religion. After all, religion is by nature exclusive and intolerant, right? Two of the great evils that are being uh, discussed in our world today. So what if we could find some way to eradicate religion? And even if we could, If that weren't difficult enough, what do you do with the fact that many of the great injustices and the greatest atrocities in human history have been committed not just by the deeply religious institutions and ideologies out there, but by the deeply non-religious, irreligious institutions and ideologies like communism or Nazism? If you really start to kind of think about, like, what would it take and and how would it be sustainable, you realize that the prospect of world peace becomes pretty improbable. There's a lot of troubling realities out there that it would have to be dealt with, right? But for the sake of argument, let's just be optimists for a moment this morning. Let's say we could actually rid ourselves of all of these evil people and all of these evil institutions and ideologies. Would that take care of it? Would we have a sustainable peace then? Well, if anyone was left, and that's a big if, right? Would you be able to trust those who are left from somehow slipping back into the old patterns of selfishness or conflict or hatred or wrongdoing? And maybe even more poignantly, could you trust yourself? That's actually the problem. If we're really honest about it and we evaluate like, what's evil in the world, you don't have to get very far. You, you can't really even look past your nose and you've, you've run into a big problem. Peace on earth actually fails with you. And it fails with me. So if that's our situation, we're in real trouble then. We're in desperate trouble if the hope for world peace rests upon ourselves. It's pretty obvious it's never going to happen unless this. I mentioned earlier, is it possible apart from Christ? Unless we remember the original promise of peace on earth was given. There is a promise of peace on earth that was given, and it was given in the arrival of a baby whose birth we celebrate every Christmas, Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 2. He is pleased. The promise of peace on earth has been given. Notice it wasn't yet a comprehensive peace though, right? It was among those in whom he is pleased. The fact is we can't achieve peace on earth apart from Christ. And the reason that's true is because there's this fundamental necessity for peace. It requires a once and for all removal of all evil of all wrongdoing in humanity. And that, again, is not possible for us to achieve on our own. History makes that very clear. But it is possible for God. And our passage today tells us how he will accomplish it in Jesus. So if you haven't gotten there yet, are you all there at Zechariah chapter 5? We're going to continue on in looking at these visions that Zechariah has been given. Uh, Let me set this up a little bit because we're we're actually going to, finish out these night visions. Remember that Zechariah up to this point has had this series of what the total here is eight of these night visions, possibly, and probably all given in one night back in the spring of the year 519 BC. This was very soon after the Jewish exiles had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild it. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians And the Jewish people had been carted off into exile, into Babylon for 70 years. So they're now able to come back home and the prospect of rebuilding this this ruined city, the ruined temple, all of it, very overwhelming to them. And so the Lord brings Zechariah, a prophet, to them and gives these visions which have offered for them a glorious and encouraging glimpse into God's future plans for them. And the, the motivator or I should say the idea that he's trying to motivate them most to accomplish here is to rebuild the temple. And the reason for rebuilding the temple is so that Yahweh's presence could dwell with them again. So we get these visions. The first vision, remember, was about angelic horsemen, and the horsemen were led by the angel of the Lord, and they were patrolling the earth. And they reported back that they found the earth to be at rest all except for Jerusalem, the city of God. It was, of course, not at rest. They were were decimated at this point. But God, in this first vision, was telling them that he was with them. He was with them in their low estate, and he would again choose Jerusalem and would again cause them to prosper. The second vision involved four horns. These four horns represented hostile powers like Babylon that had opposed Israel. But God showed them in that vision that he was bringing four craftsmen to break down these horns and to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The third vision showed a man with a measuring line laying out a rebuilt Jerusalem as a city without walls because God was going to protect it and God was going to populate it. And then we get to the the fourth and fifth visions, which were sort of the, the center of these eight visions. The fourth vision was about the high priest Joshua. Remember, he was standing sort of in this courtroom. He was standing before the bench of God's justice, and he was completely filthy. He was stained by sin, and Satan was next to him as like a prosecuting attorney, And as the priest, Joshua represents all of the people. They're all utterly defiled in God's eyes. They're all unworthy to be in his presence. But God does something amazing here. He takes away Joshua's filthy garments, and he gives him clean clothes to wear. And it's a powerful picture of what salvation involves for anyone who stands in Christ. Jesus takes our stains and our sins, and he wears them, on the cross, and in exchange, he robes us with his righteousness. He silences Satan and allows us to dwell in peace with God. There's, there's maybe no better picture of what it means to be a Christian than what we saw there in that fourth vision. The fifth vision was directed towards Zechariah, or excuse me, Zerubbabel, who was the governor of uh, of Jerusalem at that time, along with the high priest Joshua, and they're depicted, remember, as as branches from these olive trees through which the oil to fuel a gigantic lamp flowed. And the point of that was that God's spirit would supply all of the power his people needed. It was not going to be through their own strength or might, nor any human power, but by the spirit of God that the people would shine forth the glory of God again. That's a recap of all the different visions that we've looked at. Do you remember them? So we're now at the the, the final three of these eight visions as we get here into Zechariah chapter five. And, and we're gonna cover all three of them today. So I'm warning you a little bit in advance. It might go a little longer than I normally do. Hang in with me. All right, I'll try to move through it quickly. But, but, but here's the thing. There's this encouraging picture of what God is going to do, what the future is going to hold for them, right? The, the city's gonna be rebuilt. I'm gonna be with you. My presence will be with you. Build this temple this is going to be not only a, 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 an event which God meets with them in the present, but he's pointing them forward to the great day where he will be with them forever, right? There's a lot of encouragement, but there has to be this question in them, like we were asking just a few minutes ago, but what about ongoing potential for sin? What, 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 if, what if we ruin all of this, right? Right? What will we do with the remaining evil in the world, even after God has encouraged us and and, and brought us to this place of his presence and his glory? That's what these final visions are going to address. So let's look at them now. Chapter 5. And let's read what God has to say about how he will deal with the removal of wickedness within the community of his own people. Zechariah says, Again, I lifted my eyes... And saw and behold a flying scroll. And he said to me, the angel, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. It's width 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So this vision of the flying scroll shows us this this scroll that is that is opened up it's it's not rolled up but it's open for everyone to read so everyone can see it's its size is 30 feet by 15 feet that's what 20 by 10 cubits translates to in our modern measurements it's an enormous message again everyone can see this message and the size though is also interestingly identical to the dimensions of Solomon's portico, which was in the original temple that had been destroyed. This would have probably been apparent to all of the original Jewish observers. And it's significant because this this, this this original temple had this portico in front of it, in front of the main hall, these exact dimensions where in that courtyard, the priestly justice would have been administered. So in other words, it was sort of like A courtroom where transgressions of the law, where breakings of the covenant with God were judged and were punished. So, this image of this scroll where the law is given and this image of the, the place of justice and judgment is pretty stark here. The covenant which had been given to the people through Moses at Mount Sinai had always held up both the promise of blessing for obedience. And also the promise of curse for disobedience. So these words on the flying scroll were pronouncing that curse against all evildoers. There's two types of sinners that are mentioned. One on one side says talks about thieves and the other side talks about those who swear falsely. They're representative of all evildoers. In fact, they represent the breaking of the law as summed up in the Ten Commandments. Both in sinning against others. And also in sinning against God. Every thief on the one side represents all who wrong their neighbor, which half of the Ten Commandments deal with, right? And the other side, the swearing falsely, which involves using God's name, is an insult and an offense against God himself, what the other half of the Ten Commandments represent. So there's, there's really a judgment here for all sin that's flying and sort of hovering over their heads. And the Lord says here that he will clean them out according to their transgressions of these, these laws. This signifies being removed from the covenant people, therefore outside of, put outside of God's salvation. This is a curse. And it's a curse which is a word from the Lord that is personified in saying it's going to come into your house, it will enter your houses and remain, and it will destroy that house both timber and stone in other words this is a comprehensive judgment and there's nowhere you can hide it's a scary and it's a stark warning what's the point of the flying scroll it's simply this the vision makes clear that the lord through his word intends to judge every sin every sin the people in other words aren't just going to rebuild this temple And be okay. They would be fooling themselves if they thought that simply rebuilding the temple would automatically bring with it the blessings of God. They must not only rebuild the temple, but more importantly, they must return wholeheartedly to the covenant itself. That's the message of the Flying Scroll. The next vision is the vision of a woman in a basket. Let's read verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes. And see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket, and he thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base." All right, so again, both the sixth vision, which we looked at, the flying scroll, and now the seventh vision have something to say about how God deals with sin within his own household. The previous vision concentrated on sin's judgment. This one is concentrated on the purifying of the land by the removal of sin from them. Zechariah sees here a measuring basket. Literally, it's an ephah, which was the largest dry measurement that they would have used in Israel at that time. It's equal to a, a bushel, which that probably still doesn't mean much to you, but it's about nine to 10 gallons, right? It's, it's, it's big, this big basket, but perhaps it was enlarged here in the vision, much like the scroll would have been enlarged. And and, and why in Ephah? What, what's significant about this basket? It, it's probably chosen because of passages like Amos chapter eight, verse five, which which pronounced a, a, a condemnation upon the people of Israel for skimping the measure, for, for, for sort of putting less grain in the ephah than is supposed to be, you know, unjust scales and whatnot. But, but, but jacking up the price nonetheless, it's this sign of dishonesty. It's this, this sort of lack of concern for others. So for them to see this big uh, reminder that their, their business practices are often unethical would probably have been fairly stark for them, Right. And this basket is covered with this heavy leaden lid, but the lid is removed, and inside sits this woman who is the personification of wickedness. Now ladies, that doesn't mean that women represent wickedness better than men. <laughs> it simply means that the word is probably, uh, it's, it's a feminine word here, like Proverbs. Remember we studied Proverbs, and there was lady foolishness, and there was lady wisdom. Uh, similar. Similar writing here. And note, too, that those who remove the wickedness from the area, the the agents of God here, are also women. So that's not the point. The point is that that there's this personification of wickedness. It's sort of like see yourselves and, and see how you're exposed, those of you who commit this wickedness. It's an act of judgment here for sure. She's cast back into the basket. She's shoved into it. And the heavy lid is tightly secured again. Her fate is sealed, in other words. And these women who take the basket away, it says here that the wind was in their wings. That could equally have been translated, the spirit is in their wings. This cleansing work is a work of God's spirit. In fact, it says there that they they had wings like a stork. The word stork is from the same root word as steadfast love. So it's this picture of, of God's steadfast love, his grace, removing their wickedness out of the land and taking it away. He will graciously judge sin and remove it far away. It's an act of judgment for sure, but it's also an act of love for those remaining in his covenant community. And where are they carrying the basket? It says to Shinar. Where's that? Well, Shinar was in Babylon. Shinar is also the place that Abraham left when God made a covenant with him. It's also the place where the Tower of Babel was built and ultimately destroyed by God. It is a symbolic place of idolatry. It's a fitting location for wickedness to be condemned to the place of idolatry. And God says here that there will be a house built for it there, a temple built, an idolatrous temple built in which this wickedness will be carried away and set into that house. It implies that that wickedness, specifically idolatry, has no place among God's people. It's carted off to a sort of a figurative hell. He will judge his sin within his own covenant people. He'll remove it forever. And he'll condemn it to eternal bondage locked up under a heavy lid. That's the the idea of this vision. And then another vision the four chariots, chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, the chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. All right, this is the final vision. I know these are are challenging. But remember, this vision has a lot of similar language to the very first vision that we looked at back in chapter 1. The two together sort of work like bookends. They, they provide sort of this, this envelope that, that, that ties together and unifies the whole series of, of these visions. And there's a climax here. Remember back in, in chapter one, the horses were sent out to patrol the earth and they came back and they reported all the earth is at rest. All of the, all of the nations are at rest. That was not a good thing, right? They were resting in their own strength. And, and, and they said, and, and yet God's people are not at rest. That was the first vision. Here, we see the, the horses are, are here again, and they go out again to the four corners of the earth. But the report is given in verse 8 that the earth is at peace by the Spirit of God. And it mentions the north, most probably because this, the north had lots of different associations for the people. It was the place where Babylon was. It was the place where rival gods were said to have their headquarters. Again, it was the land of Shinar. It was the direction from which all of the attacks against Israel had come, including prophecies of the end time uh, attacks against Israel. It's where they would come from. So, So the horses go out again, but this time instead of saying God's people are not at rest, but the rest of the world is, we get this report back that the spirit has now placed all of the earth at rest under God's rest. There is a victory now. God is satisfied now with the condition of the whole world. It has been rid of evil at this point. The Lord's spirit is at rest, and the nations have been judged. And then you get this picture of these two mountains, which seem to represent the gateway of heaven, and they appear as bronze mountains, which I think is... Maybe, maybe conveying two different ideas. One is that the, the, a lot of commentators say that the, the bronze reflection off the mountain sort of indicates like the sun is rising. It's reflecting the sun. Remember, all these visions were given at night. It was darkness in the beginning. Now it's like a new day has dawned. And these two pillars of the temple entrance were bronze. And so this bronze could be there to represent the original temple, this temple this indication of strength against attack, the impregnability of God's uh, strength. So we're given this glimpse into this future to see God's final plan for redeeming the earth and his people. There's a progression. Sin is judged in the people of God. Wickedness is removed from them. And then finally, the nations are judged completely until God is satisfied that there is peace on earth. Does that make sense? I know it's hard to work through these difficult visions. But it's sort of this, like, telling the end of the story, right? This is where it's all headed. And so the people hear this from Zechariah, and it it sort of begs... the the question again that we that we opened up with great god removes wickedness he takes it away we're left how will this sin-free world be governed in such a way that its peace will endure how will it not only endure but endure forever And so the Lord answers that final question here in the latter half of chapter six. The word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldi, Tobijah, and Jedediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So these are, these are our, again, returning exiles who are coming back again from Babylon, probably bringing with them Uh, gold and other offerings. And he says in verse 11, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch, branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halem, Tobiah, and Jedediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. All right, so what's happening here is, again, they're being instructed to make this crown, two crowns, in fact, one for Joshua and presumably one for Zerubbabel. But they say, place the crown on Joshua's head Put the other crown in the temple as sort of like this symbol, as this reminder of something yet to come. And Joshua, the priest, has now, who has now been crowned, has said, he is the branch. He is the one who will complete the building of the temple. This would have been very odd for them to hear. The branch, they've heard several times now throughout these visions, that was messianic language. Joshua is the priest was not supposed to wear a crown. Joshua as priest could not be in that kingly role. He wasn't the one who was supposed to complete the building of the temple. That was supposed to be Zerubbabel. So what does this mean that Joshua is being crowned here? Well, the picture here again looks forward. The mention of the branch is significant. Joshua is not... The main idea here. The coming Messiah is the main idea. How would it be that God could remove wickedness from the land and continue in that peace forever? We have to crown the priest king. He must rule this place. It looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. It looks forward to the coming of Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 7 makes this clear. Listen to what it says there. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For indeed was fitting That we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all. When he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later in that law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The point of all this is to say this. As powerful as wickedness is, as powerful as sin is, the blood of Christ is more powerful still. In Christ, the chains of our captivity have been broken, and the light of his grace has shown the way of freedom. How? How has he freed us? He secured our freedom because in the shedding of his blood, he operated in the divinely ordained threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he announced an end to all of our sin. As priest, he offered himself as the sacrifice for all of our sin. And as king, he rules in such a way as to not allow sin To reign over us any longer. These visions are they're hard to understand. But when we look back and we read them through the lens of the gospel, it it begins to to bring some clarity here. How is it that God could remove wickedness from his people and yet they still, there's still people who remain. (laughs) It's through the priest king it's through the priest the priest king who takes our sin upon himself he removes it he judges it but he cleanses us and provides a kingdom in which we can stand forever with him in his righteousness what does this mean all of this for us there's a warning in these three visions and there's an encouragement in these three visions Let me start with the warning. The warning is this. God will rid the world of evil. God will rid the world of evil. All of those who are not in Christ, and listen, even those who seemingly dwell within the community of God's household, that's whom he's writing here to, you'll have nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. Even the safety of our own homes is no safety from the comprehensive judgment of God. God will rid the world of evil. So, the warning question for us to consider this morning is this Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Or are you just fooling yourself by being in proximity to the Lord? though your heart is far from him. You're practicing, whether in secret or out in the open, the things written upon the flying scroll. If so, the, the, the warning of this text is that the curse is upon you. God will not be mocked. You may persist for a moment in your sin. You may persist in a moment in rebellion to God, but the day of judgment will come for you. So the warning is flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. In him is the safety, in him alone is the safety that we need from the coming wrath of God. He will rid the world of evil. That's the warning of the text. Here's the encouragement of the text. It's actually the exact same thing. This is an encouragement. God will rid the world of evil. He will rid the world of evil. Justice, peace will prevail because Jesus has prevailed. Which means that all who look to Jesus and long for the removal of evil will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. Are you weary of evil in the world? These Calls that we hear so regularly for justice and for peace. They've got their finger on the right spot. That, that is lacking in our world. There is tremendous evil in our world. Does it weary you? It, weary, it ought to weary you, right? But what is maybe equally wearisome to us is that we try in our attempts in our, in our as people to, to say, how are we going to fix this? What are we going to do about it? How do we protest enough? How do we how do we enact you know, enough change in society to, to make this right? It's wearying because it's overwhelming. And the encouragement here is that though it's okay and right and good to make efforts towards that end, we'll never get there on our own apart from Christ. But in Christ, God will rid the world of evil. A day is coming which justice, and peace will be established and will be sustainable. If you're weary of the world, be encouraged. God will rid the world of evil. What if you're weary of the church? Remember, a lot of the 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 pronouncements here were against God's own household here, right? The flying scroll wasn't flying across the whole earth. It was flying over the land. It was flying over Jerusalem. There are problems within the household of God. And so I think there's an encouragement here too for those of us who are weary of the church. Maybe particularly a word to those who are considering as I hear so much especially with young people. I I hear so many talking about the ideas of sort of deconstructing the faith, right? Deconstructing. Like they look at the church, they see hypocrisy abounds and like they want to just sort of deconstruct it or or, or begin to call themselves ex-evangelicals, right? Rather than evangelicals. Like we got to leave this thing. It's broken. It's messed up. Here's a word to encourage you. God will rid... The church of evil. But God will do it. It reminds me of the parable of the weeds. In fact, I want to actually you to turn there. I'm about to close with this. But if you are looking in the Pew Bible, it's on page 818. It's Matthew chapter 13. Mat- Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus tells this parable of the weeds to give us a, a clue that within even the people of God, there will be those who belong to him and those who don't. Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. Listen, if you see hypocrisy in the church, you're simply believing Jesus. You're believing Jesus because he told us that this is what it would be like. There will be wheat and weeds and they're growing up together, right? And it will be that way until the harvest. He'll sort that out. You're simply believing Jesus. So what do you do in the meantime? You pray for repentance and start with yourself. Pray for repentance. Start with yourself and be confident that the wheat will be separated from the weeds. If hypocrisy in the church causes you to want to leave it, you're not believing Jesus. You're not believing Jesus. In fact, you've actually only become one of the hypocrites yourself. Think about that. Jesus says he'll sort out the wheat from the weeds. If you try to sort it out on your own, You're probably a weed, (laughs) right? What's the conclusion of all this? Look, peace on earth, peace on earth begins with you. Because of Jesus' fulfillment, of his threefold office of prophet, priest, and, and king, evil has no claim over those who trust in him by faith. That's what I mean by it begins with you. Trust in him by faith. There's no doubt we all deserve to be cursed. There's no doubt we all deserve to be cleaned out from the perfect world that God is bringing about. But the Bible tells us that there is a new covenant made in Christ's blood, whereby he became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. He was consumed by God's wrath on the cross in our place. Justice has been served, but it's fallen on Jesus instead of us. So if you're in Christ this morning, by faith, that means that despite your sin, despite the fact that you have broken all of the laws, he has forgiven you all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's Colossians 2, 13 to 24. In other words, that flying scroll has been nailed to the cross. And it doesn't hover over you anymore. You need your wickedness to be removed forever. Forever. Jesus bore your and my sin, and he was removed. He was taken outside of the camp on our behalf. What we needed was Jesus to go to hell for us, be buried in a tomb with a heavy stone rolled over it, and set into place, and that's exactly what he did. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So we're all longing for a world without evil. Right? We want peace on earth. We want to know that good triumphs and evil does not win. And the good news for us is this. The Bible promises that that's true. It's true. God defeats all who are opposed to him. And that will be finally complete when Christ comes back and he gathers together his elect from the four winds... But know this, it's also already true. The triumph has already begun in his resurrection as he burst forth from the grave, overcoming sin and Satan and death. So what we see in this text this morning, this difficult text, this vision of a flying scroll, a woman in a basket, and four chariots, is something that, if we understand them, resonate deeply with our cravings for justice, for protection, and for victory. But it's only in Jesus that the curse can be canceled. It's only in Jesus that our wickedness can be removed and victory can be secured. So again, I ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? If not, be warned and flee to him for your salvation. And if you are, be encouraged. The priest king is on his throne. Father, I pray that you'd help us to to take heed of what you've said to us through your word this morning. Lord, it is a good thing. It is something worth rejoicing in to know that that you will judge the wickedness of the world. But it's also a terrifying thing if we reckon that we are ourselves part of that wickedness. So we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that in him the office of prophet, priest, and king come together. That he died for us. That he bore the curse for us that he removes our wickedness forever and inaugurates a kingdom in which that cannot return. He will reign supremely over his righteous kingdom forever. Hallelujah. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters in this room and those who are listening online today, Lord. Lord, I pray that the warnings and the encouragements would would fall on our, our hearts today, that your spirit would work in us, Lord, if we're not in Christ, that we would recognize our deep need for him. And if we are in Christ, that we would be encouraged, that we would be reminded that you win and that in you we share in that victory. Lord, we lament the evil in the world around us. We lament the evil in our own hearts. But we praise you that you've done something about it. We praise you that these visions give us a glimpse not only to our present reality in Christ, but our future reality in his kingdom where there will be no more evil ever again. Thank you, God, for your redeeming gospel grace. Help us to live as people who rejoice in it this week. We pray that in Jesus' name.